you've been with us through the month of January, you know that our focus has been on prayer. Uh, This morning we continue that focus, but we're going to specifically look at how repentance intersects with prayer. And one of the things that hits me, me personally, it may not you, about the idea of repentance is it doesn't really like hit my feelers as a means of worship like the songs that we just sing. Um, repentance, however, is our very spiritual worship. It's what makes the song that we sing the joyful noise to the Lord. It is when we recognize our brokenness, our limitation, our sin, and we turn to the God who has created all life, who sustains all life, who is righteous and holy and perfect. And it's that recognition of who He is that would cause us to leave everything else behind that is worship. And so as we walk through this morning, I want you to know we're going to really just spend a long time setting up context and introduction. And at the very end, we will connect all this back to prayer, I hope, and I hope it will be a challenge to you. I hope it will be very applicable to you in the way that you pray. But we have to overcome first our confirmation bias. I don't know how many of you guys are used to that term or maybe you've ever heard that term before in your life. Some of you are shaking your head going, there you go, Daniel. There you go. All right, now look, confirmation bias is simple. If you don't know what it is, you've certainly experienced it, but let me give you a quick definition. It's basically the tendency to interpret new evidence or information as confirmation for what you already believe. You've experienced this when you've watched a football game with your friends. Let's imagine that the University of Tennessee is playing the University of Alabama in the SEC championship game. It will take a lot of imagination. But let's imagine that is happening, and there you are with your Alabama friend, and you're the Tennessee fan, and there is a disagreement over a call. You're both arguing that the call is in favor of your team, and suddenly... There will be empirical evidence on the screen known as a replay. Both of you will watch the replay. And when the replay ends, both of you will simultaneously point at the screen and yell, See? Confirmation bias. Husbands, we are used to confrontation bias. By the way, I'm going to get you in trouble. So blinders, men, blinders, straight ahead. It is confirmation bias when you reply, Yes, honey, that dress looks great. And she replies, I knew you hated it. That doesn't happen in my house. My wife warns me. She goes, when you say stuff like that, people think I say that. We know what I mean. Listen, that's confirmation bias. You said one thing, it's interpreted as another. We already had our mind made up. We do that too when we study God's word. And it is a hurdle to the revelation of God and the wisdom that is given within it. One of the tendencies for us to do that is around doctrine, things that we've heard a lot, very elementary principles of the faith, like repentance. For those of you who have grown up in the culture of East Tennessee, you've probably grown up in a church culture, and you've heard the word repentance a lot. 
And in our minds, we have kind of sunk into what that must mean for us and what that is and what it's not. This morning, as we try to figure out how repentance intersects with prayer, I need you to try your best to set those biases aside and just take a few moments and consider a life of repentance. And so I want to begin by just giving you a foundational truth that is an old truth within Christian doctrine. It is simply this, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance because true faith is a repentant faith. True faith is a repentant faith. So repentance, in a quick definition, is the turning, the sincere turning away from sin. That's not just the bad thing that you did. It's not just the act, but it is the very sin nature of who we are. It is the turning away from sin toward God. And so in this sense, repentance is not a singular act, only taking place at the time of salvation. Just like faith is not a singular act, only taking place at salvation. I mean, just imagine if someone said to you, listen, I placed faith in Jesus when I was saved, but I don't do that anymore. You'd kind of turn your head and that wouldn't make sense to you. The truth is, you did place a degree of faith in Jesus at salvation, that saving faith. But for you, watch this, you hold on to that faith with all hope. And frankly, you pray that you grow in it and that it expands within you now as a Jesus follower. The same is true with repentance. And it's for this reason that R.C. Sproul writes this, Faith and repentance can be distinguished for the sake of instruction but listen, however, they can never be separated. Indeed, if faith is the utter reliance upon Christ alone for salvation, one cannot have true faith unless he turns away from sin in heartfelt sorrow. Without repentance, a person really hopes in his own goodness and in the fleeting pleasures of sin instead of God's provision in Christ. The point is this, that faith and repentance are inseparable. They're inseparable responses to God by the regenerate, the saved Jesus follower. They go hand in hand. So just as we can affirm that we are saved through faith alone, we can also affirm that saving faith is impossible without repentance let me say that again because in our culture of passivity we struggle with that even in our evangelism saving faith is impossible without repentance they are inseparable when you are asking someone to come into the family of God and place faith in them you are asking them by very definition to turn away from all that is their old self and turn to Jesus this is why conviction is at the foundation of the life-changing relationship with Jesus. They go hand in hand. This is a repentance that is not a work on our end, but a repentance that is a submissive acknowledgement of complete dependence on God. It is a complete submission to realize I have nothing to offer. 
I cannot add 1% to my righteousness that I am desperately broken. And you are perfect. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, it is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is only the sign that I realize what God has done through Christ Jesus. And so the counterpoint is also true. If there is no repentance, there is no saving realization of who God is and what He has done through Jesus. You cannot acknowledge who God is in His truth without repentance. It is demanded for the very realization of the God that you claim is the one true God. And so, again, I told you this is nothing new. It's not like I sat around this week and I thought, you know what, let let, let me think up some stuff to talk about repentance. This stuff is really old. And the fact of the matter is, if you feel like, man, Daniel's way over my head, I should not be. And if if you feel that way, I want to tell you, you need to raise your head. Be challenged. As a member of this church, you affirm our statement of faith, which is essentially the Baptist faith and message. We are a Southern Baptist church. It means we cooperate with some 45,000 plus churches. We pull our resources to advance the gospel. But in order to cooperate with those other churches, there is a statement of faith that all those churches must affirm. It's called the Baptist faith and message. I want to tell you how it reads, how our very statement of faith reads as a church. Regeneration or new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the next sentence. I want you to know I don't make it up. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Christ Jesus and the commitment of the entire personality to Him as Lord and Savior. If you're a member of this church, whether you realize it or not, you have affirmed that faith, and repentance are inseparably connected as experiences of grace in God. This is nothing new. Martin Luther sparked a great reformation when he nailed his first thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, and it read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the entire life of the believer to be a life of repentance. Peter sparked the New Testament church when he preached that first sermon in Pentecost and he closed in Acts 2:38 and said repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus began his ministry preaching repentance. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 for from that time Jesus began to preach Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, I 
I have a fear. I fear that we have so watered down regeneration or salvation to a walk down an aisle, to a hand that you raised, to a box that you checked, to a prayer that you repeated, to some sure, why not, easy believism, to this idea of a weak faith that is separated from repentance, that our churches are filled with lost people who will one day stand before God and argue their unrepentant faith before Him only to hear Him reply, Depart from me, I never knew you. I have this fear that the church, the genuine Jesus followers, are robbing themselves and those they influence of the joy. Listen, the joy, not the despair, the joy and the growth that comes from living a life of repentance. This is so troubling to me because as I examine the New Testament, I never find an example of the Jesus follower that is elevated and sustained in their faith with a separation of faith and repentance. Nowhere. There's not one example of that. And the very souls of men are at stake around the very thing that we're talking about. The very health and growth of the church is connected to this. And so I want to give us some truths to help get a hold of how repentance and prayer intersect. The first truth is this, to find true life, we must disown our life. To find true life, we must disown our life. This is basically Repentance 101. Jesus said it this way, and he said it throughout his ministry, but in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, he said, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It was so important, we know he at least said it again. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself disown himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it see according to Jesus following him required a faith that denied oneself you say what did that look like In 2016, I have no idea why. If I could tell you there was a passage that was burned into my mind, into my heart, in my meditation, a passage that was the passage that God worked on me throughout that year, it would be from Matthew 19 and the story of the rich young ruler. Those who have been around me last year, they are tired of me talking about it. They are tired of me thinking about it with them. It has messed with me. So much so that I've made it mess with others to the point that they are weary of me talking about it. It's just been a song that is stuck in my head. But it is an example. It's what it would really look like. See, there's a rich young ruler and he approaches Jesus and he asks Jesus, What must I do to have eternal life? Now, I bet the disciples were like, Whoo, sit back, it's about to go down. Right? Like, Jesus, he's a great evangelist. It's about to happen, y'all. Come around, watch this. And Jesus replies 
to the rich young ruler and says, Go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What has stuck out to me so much in this passage is what Jesus does not do next. He does not chase down the rich young ruler and say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You don't really have to sell everything that you own. Just, you just have to kind of put some faith and maybe one point be willing to or something. He lets the man walk away in sorrow. Now Jesus has an advantage that you and I do not. His discernment of the rich young ruler's heart is perfect. And he understood that in the rich young ruler, any faith that he would put in Jesus would have been incomplete. Because to him, Jesus was still not worth everything. Jesus let the man walk away. I feel that Jesus would fail every personal evangelism class taught in every church. (laughs) We would fuss and we would complain. Jesus, he wanted to know, why didn't you just tell him? He would have prayed a prayer with you, I'm sure of it. Why did you tell him to do all this other stuff? Because Jesus, in his perfection and in his divinity, understood something. The man's heart was not at a place of repentance. Jesus wasn't worth everything. And that Jesus isn't the real Jesus. That's faith in a false God, an incomplete God. That has messed with me. But it shows us an example of repentance, and it brings clarity to us that saving faith requires repentance. A complete denial of self. A disowning of self. Listen, church, because this is the parallel I want you to hear. And if that is true at regeneration, at salvation, that it requires repentance... So also does sanctification, the life of the believer, discipleship. It too requires that we deny our old self. So I want to give you another truth. To live in the fullness of our new life, we must daily deny our old life. This self is not your soul or your individuality that I'm talking about. Listen, this self is the sinful, rebellious nature that indwells you. Paul describes this battle as a spiritual battle between the self, the sin nature, and the spirit that now indwells the believer as well. Speaking to believers, believers, Paul writes these things, Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Listen, that's a term of war. Where's Where's the war? Within you. This is a believer. You've got to fight. Put it to death. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 3. Put no confidence in the flesh. 
no confidence in the flesh. This is why we should have such a high view of Scripture and such a low view of our experience, our emotion. Because it's so ingrained into our flesh. Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh. Romans 7, 18, this is what Paul says. I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Here's the qualifier. That old self that is still within me, that flesh, that sin nature. There is nothing good in it. And not only is there nothing good in it, it is an enemy at war presently, even in life of the believer. Paul's a believer. We can trust Paul's a believer. Even in Paul the believer, his flesh opposes God. It opposes God's will in his life. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. So what do we do? I mean, really, what do we do? He goes on in Romans 13, verse 12, cast off, turn, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He goes on, verse 14, Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Turn from the flesh. Turn from your sin. Run from it. Listen, it's not grace to be indifferent to sin. To be passive to sin. It is grace to recognize who God is and long to worship Him. That with everything in your longing and being, you are ready to turn from sin and put on Jesus. Starve out your flesh. This is the charge. Because repentance is primarily an act of worship for the believer. It is primarily an act of worship for the believer. It is us recognizing in the fullness that God is worth everything. Everything. And because of who he is, there is nothing in my old self, in my temporal life, that is worth my attention. But in him, and him alone is my salvation. And in him, and him alone is my value, my worth, and my purpose. That's worship. And as long as our focus is on him, our repentance is not, oh man, look what I couldn't do. It's not the despair that's focused on you. It is the joy that is focused on who God is. And so all this to remind us, your life, your very inner being is at war. It's at war. Your victory as an authentic Jesus follower is certain. But your mind, your heart, your body, your flesh, they are still at war against your Savior. Your old self does not want to worship God. It is still opposed to God. And it is here, from the trenches of your war within, that repentance and prayer intersect. Repentance and prayer intersect not from a place that, you know, is quiet and peaceful, 
and just, you know, filled with cotton candy and flying unicorns. You can tell I have a six-year-old girl. Repentance and prayer intersect in a war that is within you. Prayer is the first step of application in living a life of repentance. Prayer is the first place we seek the Spirit's help to deny ourselves, to daily disown ourselves. Prayer is where we disown ourselves and seek to put on Jesus in the Spirit. Prayer is the forum for the simultaneous repentance and faith that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so, with that context, I want you to once again go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. This is the Lord's instructive prayer. We've talked about this passage throughout our prayer series. In verse 11, Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray says, give us this day our daily bread. This day, daily, that's the context. Every day. You don't say this day unless you're praying every day. Give us this day, daily, bread. The most basic necessity. Here's the point. I am completely dependent on you. I can't feed myself without you. And any illusion I have is just that. It's an illusion. I am dependent on you. For my most basic needs. That's the context. Daily. Now watch what he says. And forgive us our debts. In you, in who I have claimed you to be, you are due my life. That's what salvation is. I give you all of me. It's due to you. I can't, I can't even do that. That reality will either lead you to despair because your focus, your subject is off, you think that's on you. Or it will bring you joy as you cry out in repentance, in worship, saying, no, no, you, Forgive me my debt. It's a powerful difference in the life of the believer. And it is so impactful. Because what you need to grasp in this is that when we come to the Lord, recognizing there is a battle within us, the thing that we have proclaimed, the thing that God has decreed, the certainty that we have that Jesus' righteousness is ours, You can no more live in that today than you could do it for yourself back at the point of salvation. And it is daily an act of worship to go before the Lord and cry out, I long for your Spirit. You have declared me righteous before you on the account of your Son, But I still have this old sinful flesh that is at war. It fights for my actions, for my mind. But I don't want that. 
It's not good. I long for you. Give me more of you. Give me what you have declared to make me. It is the longing for sanctification to be made more like Jesus in your life. That is not a brokenness and a despair because of what you're not. It is a longing of worship and the recognition of who God is and what He has promised us. And in it there is joy. Joy. And so, a few points of application before we close. When you pray, repent. Here's some actions to just help you get started. One, proclaim who God is when you pray. Proclaim His attributes, His divinity, His creation. Look what He has created. If you want to feel small, take a few moments and just read those back few chapters of Job. And let God ask you, where were you when I created the world? That'll make you feel small. But it'll also make God really big. Proclaim God's perfection. Second, confess who you are when you pray. After you have exalted God and recognized who He is, take a few minutes before Him to be honest and sincere enough to confess who you are. Your weakness, your sin nature, your dependence. Even the things that you think that are your blessings are only gifts given to you by Him. Not earned of yourself. Third, proclaim His ways when you pray. His sovereignty, His holiness, love, and truth. Fourth, confess your ways when you pray. Scripture teaches us that God's ways are above our ways, beyond our even comprehension. Our ways are selfish, they're prideful, they're broken motives. And fifth, as you do this, repent. Turn and cry out to God in an act of worship that you long for less and less of you, that you are willing and hopeful to deny yourself that day that you may run into the arms of Jesus and gain more and more of Him. Again, your victory is secure. Repentance in the life of the believer is worship in the pursuit of sanctification. And so sixth, Worship when you pray. Repentance brings joy and gladness. We'll see that in just a minute as we close by reading Psalm 51. Repentance brings joy and gladness. If you really believe He is the one true God, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by daily turning From your old self that is still at war and opposes what God wants to do in your life and crying out for the Spirit to do a work in you to give you more and more of Him. Each step closer to Him is a joyful step. Repentance, worshiping who God is, is not lamenting who you are not. It is the recognition of who he is. 
I can think of no better way for us to repent and turn to the Lord but by remembering what he has done for us on the cross. And in just a few moments, we're going to have a time of response by taking the Lord's Supper. Before we go on, I want you to know if you're here and you have never placed saving faith in Jesus, a faith that is inseparable from a repentance and a denying of yourself, The God who has created the world, created you, and sustains your very breath, He is faithful to save you, to redeem you, to take you from your brokenness and your sin and your old life and give you a new life wrapped in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. I would challenge you this morning, right where you sit, to cry out to God to repent and put your faith in Jesus. To not leave this building without a relationship with Him as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one true God. Church, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and pray with me. I'm going to read Psalm 51 as our closing prayer. Psalm 51 is David crying out in repentance after great sin in his life. May this be our prayer. Father, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me behold you delight in truth and In the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. And create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Father, that is our prayer this morning. That through faith and repentance, the indwelling of your spirit would convict us not to bring us despair but to uphold us to the God of our salvation to bring us to worship Father this day forgive us our debt and bring us to our act of worship which Paul says 
is the sacrifice of our body. In Romans 12. Lord, may we worship you as your children in repentance. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.